So we are uh, looking at another one of these encounters that Jesus has. This this all follows right on the heels of him cleansing the temple, and cursing the fig tree, and then uh, basically dealing really harshly with the religious leaders in Jerusalem. Uh, this is uh, another political slash religious group, very influential uh, in the, the circumstances surrounding his arrest and his crucifixion. Last week, we spent a good amount of time talking about that period in between the Old Testament and the New Testament, that, that 400-year period we call the intertestamental period, intertestamental, right? And uh, the, the rise of the Pharisees. Um, this week, we are going to be looking at their political and religious rivals, the Sadducees. Most people don't realize that the Pharisees and the Sadducees were not allies. They were very much opposed to each other. In fact, at one point when, when Paul is arrested and he is brought before the Sanhedrin, we are told that he realizes that the group before him is made up of Pharisees and Sadducees. And since Paul was once a Pharisee, he uses that to his advantage to get some protection so that he's not executed. And that's when he requests his audience before Caesar. So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 22. We're going to start with verse 23, and we're going to go through verse 33. So as we normally do in respect for God's Word, if you would stand with me as I read this morning's passage. The same day Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies having no children... His brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So too the second and third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, You are wrong, because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob? He is not God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. Let's pray. Father, once again, as we come to your word, we want to handle it with care. We want to handle it correctly. We want to understand what you are trying to tell your church. So, Father, help us to be faithful to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Please have a seat. So the, the Sadducees started in the intertestamental period, um, just like the, the Pharisees did, as far as the formalization of the group but they can actually trace their heritage back even further than the Pharisees. Remember the Pharisees, uh, we had the, the exile of the northern ten kingdoms. They were taken into captivity by the Assyrians, and then Babylon came in and captured the Assyrians. They, they conquered the Assyrians, and then they conquered the southern kingdom. And it was at that point that the temple was destroyed, and the synagogues began to sprout up. And the Pharisees came from those people that were the, the sages, the wise people, the teachers, the scribes in the synagogues. 
right? Well, the Sadducees can, at least in name, trace their lineage to Zadok. And if that name sounds familiar to you, if you've read any of the Old Testament, particularly around the book of Exodus, right? Zadok was the first high priest of Israel. He's one of the sons of Aaron. Okay? So the Sadducees trace their line, at least in name, all the way back to the high priest. That means the Sadducees were a political and religious party of priests. Remember when the priests came and, and asked Jesus where he got his authority from? They were probably Sadducees, right? The uh, When the, the second temple was built in Jerusalem, now we have the the captivity of the southern kingdom, and then the Persians came in and, and conquered Babylon, and the Persian king allowed the Jews to go back to Jerusalem, rebuild the temple. The temple was finished around 516 B.C. Its purpose in Jerusalem changed. See, when Solomon built the temple, the temple was the religious center of Israel. That's where worship happened. That's where prayer happened. That's where sacrifices were given. That's where offerings were made. But the political seat of Israel was in the palace. David even lived in the palace. That's where he was when he should have been off to war and he saw Bathsheba bathing on a rooftop. The political center was the palace. The religious center was the temple. When the temple was rebuilt... The palace wasn't. So the temple became the political seat in Israel as well. Not that there was a king from the line of David ruling, because there wasn't after the return, right? But what there was was the priests who had the scrolls of the law, who knew the religious. And Israel at that point, was as much a construct of faith as it was a construct of politics. So the priests kind of ruled the country from the building of the second temple until they were conquered by Greece and then by Rome and so on that we talked about last week. Government was in the temple. Philosophy was in the temple. Debate was in the temple. Religious observance was in the temple. It was the heart of everything in Jerusalem. And the priests managed the temple. That was their job. So when the sacrifices had to be made, who made the sacrifices? The priests did. When people asked about the interpretation of the law, who told them? The priests did. Right? The synagogues were where they went to get taught, but the temple was where they went for everything else. When Herod built his expansion of the temple, Herod the Great, it became even more central to the people of Israel because now their ruler was in the temple. Herod basically placed his headquarters in the temple, so it, it, it took on even more prominence. So this accounts for the authority and the status of the Sadducees. As priests... They administered the domestic and international affairs of the state. They were the ambassadors. They had the ruling council, the Sanhedrin. They were part of the Sanhedrin. 
the Pharisees made up another part of the Sanhedrin. They collected taxes. They collected tribute from the Jews that were dispersed around the world that would send their money back to Jerusalem. It was the Sadducees who collected that up. They equipped and led the army. When Jesus was crucified, when when they took his body down from the cross and they put him in the tomb, remember how there were those that went to uh, uh, Pilate and said, look, we're afraid his disciples are going to steal the body and then say that he was raised from the dead. So he tells them to take a guard, right? Well, there's two different theories for who the guard was, one of them being Roman soldiers, right? And the other being the temple guard. Well, who commanded the temple guard? The Sadducees did. They were a military force. So the Sadducees did all of this. They regulated the interaction, the political and national interaction with the Romans, they acted as the court system. So if there was a trial, if there was a judgment that needed to be made, a civil lawsuit, it went before the priests. Because in the Old Testament law, that's what the priests did. Kingship, having a political ruler like David or Solomon or the kings who followed, was kind of a concession by God for the people, not a plan B, it had always been his plan, but he did it at that time to appease the people because he knew they were going to want a king like their neighboring nations. If you take their positions, you take their influence, you take their power into account, one thing you cannot say about the Sadducees was that they were poor. They weren't. They were actually on the other end of the economic spectrum. They were loaded. They were very wealthy. They were powerful among the Jews. They were powerful among the Romans. Why? Because in any form of government, money talks. Okay? So they held a lot of money, they held a lot of power, and they held a lot of sway in Jerusalem especially. But their religious belief was a little bit weird, especially as we think about everything that we know about the Jews. First and foremost, religiously, they rejected the Talmud, which was that oral tradition that the Pharisees had had written down, they rejected it entirely. Scripture was the Torah, and that was it. And specifically, when they said Torah, they meant Pentateuch. They meant Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's it. For them, that was Scripture. Where is the role and responsibility and authority of the priesthood written down? In the Pentateuch. Well, of course that's where they're going to go for their authority. Because if you go to the books of the prophets, what were most of the priests guilty of? Violating God's law. Making inappropriate sacrifices, 
not doing what they were supposed to do and doing the stuff they weren't supposed to do. If you go to the books of the history, so First and Second Chronicles, First and Second Kings, First and Second Samuel, those books, what do you find the priesthood doing? Not the right stuff. So, of course, they're not going to want to have those as part of infallible, inerrant, authoritative Scripture. So they didn't. They completely, they didn't think they were worthless, but they were just historical documents. They weren't Scripture. They also excluded almost every idea of the supernatural. They didn't believe in angelic beings. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They did not believe in, in miracles. Anything supernatural was outside of the realm of possibility unless it was in those first five books. Period. That's it. Now, before I get to their question that they asked Jesus there's another aspect of their faith that I want to talk about, and that's the fact that they rejected the resurrection. Okay? Their view of death was not unique to just Sadducees. In fact, their view of death was the orthodox view of all of the Jews. This was the standard. The idea of resurrection was actually a relatively new construct in Israel because it's only found in the Old Testament in a very couple of Old Testament books, I believe Ezekiel and Daniel, which are very apocalyptic in nature. They are very figurative. They are very poetic. And so they, they completely dis, discounted the idea of resurrection because after all, when a person dies... What is the universal experience for what happens with that person after they die? They stay dead. Right? It is, it is not normal for us to walk through a graveyard and see people popping up out of the, the grave. Now, maybe if you watch AMC or, or, you know, one of those walking dead, whatever zombie shows, that's, that's not it. Right? When a person dies, generally speaking, they stay dead. So based on universal experience and based on the fact that there is no resurrection spoken of in the first five books of the Bible, there is no resurrection. This is also very, very, very common in all of the other ancient cultures. When a person died, they went to the place of the dead. Now, as you read through the Old Testament, the term you find in most translations in the Old Testament for what happens to a person when they die is the word sheol. You might not be surprised to know that's not an English word. It's a Hebrew word that we transliterate. We don't translate it, we transliterate it. We take the Hebrew letters and we write down their English equivalent, and that becomes the word for us. So it's the word Sheol. During the period of Hellenization, when and, uh, Andrew, where did I get Alexander the Great, Andrew the Mediocre, when Alexander the Great had uh, conquered Palestine, and he was in the process of converting 
cultures to the Greek, uh, not long after his death, there was the translation of the Old Testament into Greek. We call the Septuagint. There were, at least according to folklore, there were 70 Hebrew scholars who translated the Hebrew text into Greek. Okay? So if you look in your Bibles, if, if you've got little footnotes down at the bottom, you might need a really big magnifying glass to read them. But if you ever see the letters LXX, that is the Septuagint. That is the Roman numeral for 70, LXX. So that's talking about the Septuagint translation from the Hebrew into the Greek. When that was done, the word Sheol was converted into Greek, and the Greek word was Hades, because Hades was the place of the dead. But the the philosophy of Sheol and the philosophy of Hades were different. In the English Standard, which is what I read from this morning, the word Sheol is found in the Old Testament 65 times. It's one of those cases where I actually like the, the word that the, the, the translators used in the older translations because where it says Sheol in mine, and that's not an English word, right? So I have to look it up, figure out what it means. In the older translations, the word that they chose was the word grave. Well, you know what? I know what a grave is. It's a hole that we put in the ground, right? Oh, well, down here we don't do that a lot because the water table is close enough that then you do have people popping out of the ground. We build those, you know, mausoleums or sepulchres or whatever we call them, that kind of like a filing cabinet for dead bodies. Um, but anyways, it's a grave. I know what a grave is. It's the place where the dead are. The grave, Sheol, was represented by darkness. Not darkness as in evil or punishment or anything like that, but darkness as in the lights are out. It was inhabited by the spirits of the dead. All of the spirits of the dead. Good, bad, and ugly. There was no moral judgment. Now this is the position of the Jews up until about the first century B.C., Traditionally, all Jews understood that when you died, that spiritual component of you went someplace dark. That was the extent. There was no heaven. There was no hell. There was dark. That was it. You were separated from life. You were separated from God. There was no reward. There was no punishment. You're, you're dead. That's it. In around probably four or 500 B.C., there started to be some idea, and actually you can trace it a little bit further back in the Old Testament, that the spirits would like to be around other spirits that they knew. So that's where family tombs became very important. In fact, if you think back to when... Uh, When the Israelites left Egypt, what is one thing that they took with them? They took the bones of Jacob 
and his sons. And they took them with them. Because those bones were somehow tied to the spirit and they didn't want to leave all those patriarch spirits in Egypt. They wanted to take them with them so that when they buried their people, they could all be in the family. Right? This is how you could make sure that your loved ones would find the right part of Sheol was to bury them with their ancestors. So they were all hanging out in the same place. Now, when Hellenization started, there was a little bit of a change when the Greek philosophy was inserted and they started using the word Hades because in Hades, there's, there's different pieces. I don't know, any of you familiar with Greek mythology at all? A little bit? Okay, Hades was made up of three different layers. Basically, you had Elysium, you had the Asvotal Meadows, and then you had Tartarus. And, and notice that I did this, right? Tartarus was the deepest, darkest, worst part of Hades. And that's where the bad people went. It's not quite hell because they actually go to atone for the bad stuff that they did. It's more like the Catholic idea of purgatory. Okay? Then you had Elysium, which was up here. That was the, the top level of Hades. So that's just under the topsoil, right? That's where the noble people went. And I don't mean like the, the royalty. I mean the people who did really good stuff. So you have the two different, okay? We have those who do really good stuff, and then we have those who do really bad stuff. What about all the people who just kind of do? They don't do the really bad stuff, but they're not necessarily really good either. That's where those meadows came in. That's where the ordinary folks went. In the 2nd century B.C., the Jews started adopting this idea that Sheol had a place of rest, which they called Abraham's bosom. Have you ever heard that phrase? Jesus used it in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, right? The rich man was kind of a jerk. Lazarus was a, a, a crippled, lame beggar that used to sit outside the rich man's gate. And eventually both of them passed away. And Lazarus was in Abraham's bosom. He was in that place of rest. He Basically the idea was he'd already gone through enough bad stuff. So now he's in a place of rest. The rich man, because he was such a jerk, he went to the place of torment. Again, this is not hell. This is a place where he pays for his sins. And he cried out to Lazarus, can you, you know, at least drop a little water on my tongue? Right? Because it's hot down here. No, you're not allowed to. Well then, can you go back and tell my brothers that they don't want to go through this? And Jesus used that parable to say, look, they have the prophets, they have Moses, they have the entirety of Scripture. They didn't believe that. They're not going to believe somebody coming back from the dead. The Sadducees were firmly convinced there was no resurrection. When a person went to Sheol, that was it. The dead stay dead. And they felt they were on safe ground because that's what the Pentateuch, the books of Moses, says. Person dies, they die. 
done. They would admit to a soul, so they were a little bit different than an atheist, because an atheist will say that, that when a person dies, they're just worm food, basically. But they weren't far from that. That's what makes their question to Jesus so comical. I want to go back to the Scripture. Matthew says, the same day, so this is right after the Pharisees come to Jesus and try to flatter Him. We know you speak the truth and you don't care what other people think and blah, 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 all these flowery words to try to trick Him, right? And then they ask Him about paying taxes. The same day, the Sadducees show up. And Matthew says specifically, who say that there is no resurrection. Why does Matthew say that they don't believe in the resurrection? Because their question is, in the resurrection, <laughs> what happens? They're arguing from a false premise. They're arguing from a position they don't even believe. They were convinced that when a person died, there was nothing more. But they asked Jesus this question, again, just like the Pharisees, to catch Jesus in a moral dilemma, right? Because if you look at the question, according to the law of Moses, if a man dies and he doesn't have a child, specifically a male child, right? Now, by the time of the Sadducees and the Pharisees, they had gotten a little bit more liberal in who could inherit, but it was still considered, if they didn't have a male child, then you're stuck. The widow as long as she was still of marriable age and of childbearing age, would then be married by her husband's oldest living male relative, brother or cousin, to give her a son who would then bear her late husband's name. Uh, Ruth. Y'all read the book of Ruth, right? This is exactly what happens. Naomi's husband and her two sons die. Ruth is left a widow. She's a very young woman. She's probably only maybe 17 to 20 years old. She has no children. Naomi goes back to Israel. Ruth follows her, says, where you go, I'll go, right? And then Boaz acts as that kinsman redeemer. He's a cousin of the family. And he steps in and marries her to care for her and give her a child. But that child is considered to be whose? Her first husband, which actually puts him as Naomi's heir. Or her husband's heir, to be specific. So he took the place of her husband. So this, this kinsman-redeemer thing, this leveret marriage thing, was to provide for that widowed woman somebody who could care for her in her old age. Legally, the child would inherit the estate of the deceased man. Now, in the case of their hypothetical question, they said, within, among us, so this is, even we don't believe in the resurrection, and among our group who doesn't believe in the resurrection, there were seven brothers. Brother number one got married, and then he died. So brother number two married her, like he's supposed to, because they're priests, and that's what the law says. 
And he died. And then number three, number four, number five, number six, number seven. It had to have been a genetic condition. <laughs> That's all I can guess. <laughs> At this point, that family just needs to give it up. All right? After the last one died, the woman also passed. She was probably tired. Too many funerals. Okay? Whether she actually managed to have a child or not, and see, that's the point of the law. That's the point of this, this leveret marriage thing is to make sure she had a child who would care for her in her old age. The Sadducees didn't care about that. Cause you notice they don't say anything about children other than the fact that she didn't have any with those first six brothers. We assume she didn't with the seventh either. The question was in the resurrection, that we don't believe in, whose wife will she be? Well, <laughs> later on in, in the book of Ephesians, and I believe, no, not in Ephesians, in, in 1 Timothy, when Paul writes to Timothy, the reason I said Ephesians because Timothy was the, the pastor in Ephesus. When Paul writes to Timothy, he tells him, don't get tied up in useless debates. This is the kind of thing that makes for a useless debate, right? This is one of those things where you read it and you really scratch your head and you, what is the point? Does it matter at all? Well, they're trying to get Jesus to screw up. In the resurrection that they didn't believe in at all, who would be the legitimate husband which would make the others adulterers. Because that's covered in the law too, right? So here, here's the thought process. If all of them all of a sudden were resurrected from the dead, here would be this woman who had married all seven brothers. She would have seven husbands, which, no, okay? Polygamy is bad anyways. Polygamy in the Scripture was typically, and it is in the world, typically... One husband, multiple wives. Because most societies have come up as patriarchal societies, and that works out best for the man until he realizes that every one of those wives comes with a mother-in-law. Now, I love my mother-in-law. Singular. <laughs> Just one. And if she ever listens to this on podcast, she will know that. Just one. Right? For a woman to have multiple husbands was a no-no. In fact, most of the time, if you read the laws about adultery, it deals with the woman being unfaithful to the husband, not the other way around. The Sadducees thought they could trap Jesus in this moral dilemma because he taught the resurrection. So, First, if he said the first husband had a valid marriage, then Moses' law that says if the first husband dies without giving her a child, then, then the next brother has to marry her, that law is then null and void because the only valid marriage was the first one. That means the rest of them were all technically illegal and wrong, which means God's law is wrong. Then they could point at Jesus and say, he's teaching God's law is wrong. If Jesus said that either two through seven was the legitimate husband, 
then they could point and say, but Moses said that for this reason a man shall leave his mother and father and join to his his wife and they will become one flesh. So now you're saying that God doesn't know what he's talking about with his creation. Or the third choice is that Jesus would look at him and say, you guys are right about the resurrection, don't worry about it. Because then they can point to the people and say, look, he changes his teaching just to be political. So they're trying to get Jesus to trip himself up. And just like Jesus did to the Pharisees, he decided to answer their question with a yes. (laughs) Remember when the Pharisees came up and they said, where do you get your authority from? Jesus said, you tell me where John got his authority from? Duh, we don't know. Well, then I ain't going to tell you mine either. And then they came up, the passage we looked at last week, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? And Jesus says, whose picture's on the coin? Caesar's. Give it back. Whose picture's in you? Give it back, too. Give God what he, what he, he deserves which is your service and your love. So here, to the Sadducees, he decides to fix their thinking. Look at verse 29. He doesn't sugarcoat anything. That's how you know Jesus was a carpenter, not a baker. Okay? No sugarcoating. This is not a donut shop. He looked at the Sadducees and he said, You are wrong. What part? He didn't say your question is wrong. He didn't say your statement is wrong. He didn't say your premise is wrong or your conclusions are wrong. He said you're wrong. They were wrong. And then he tells them why they were wrong. Because they don't know the Scriptures and they don't know the power of God. Everything about this situation is wrong. Because they don't know God. Think about this for a second, folks. Who is Jesus talking to? Priests. What is the one thing that they know, that they know, that they know? Scripture. And the God that they serve is the all-powerful, almighty creator of the universe. Jesus just said, you don't know God and you don't know his word. What a slap in the face. I'm going to be honest, verse 30 has caused a little bit of controversy in the church. Jesus says, in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. That's nice and clear, isn't it? Some have used this to argue that the resurrection is purely spiritual. That when we are raised from the dead, it is as spirits. Because spirits have no need to get married, right? So we don't have to worry about it. But when Jesus was raised from the dead, what did he do? He ate. Remember at the end of the book of John? John, I believe it's chapter 26, right? They're on the Sea of Galilee. Peter and, and, and a group of the disciples had gone back to fishing because that's what they did. They were fishermen. 
And while they're out on the boat all night long, they get close to the shore and they see somebody sitting on the shore and he hollers out to them, hey, did y'all catch anything? That's Southern Jesus, by the way. Did y'all catch anything? And Peter says, no. And then Jesus does his, this is Jesus' signature line to Peter. Well, throw the net out on the other side of the boat. Remember when Jesus did that the first time? Can you see Peter's face? Right? I am a fisherman. This is what I do for a living. I know how to catch fish. It's the same water. Look, (laughs) I can drag the net from this side of the boat. Now it's on this side of the boat. It doesn't make any difference. There's no fish here. And yet, for some reason, when Jesus says, throw the net on the other side of the boat, what do the disciples do? They throw the net out the other side of the boat because Jesus has taught them, my sheep know me and they know my voice. And they obey my voice. Without even thinking about it, they got the net that they've not caught anything in all night long. They throw it out the other side of the boat and the boat starts to sink because they catch so many fish. And then Peter, on the Sea of Galilee at daybreak, suddenly has a light bulb appear over his head as he realizes who it is. And so while the rest of the disciples are hauling in the fish, what does Peter do? He jumps out of the boat and swims to shore. And when they finally get to shore, Jesus is there with a fire and he's cooking breakfast. I don't eat fish for breakfast. They were fishermen. Apparently they did because he's roasting fish. And what did he do with that fish? He ate it. Now look, I have seen a lot of bad TV shows and bad movies. The one thing I have never seen a ghost do in any of them is eat. Spirits don't eat. Flesh eats. Jesus ate. So that whole idea that the resurrection is purely spirit, thumbs down, that's not it. There are some who have speculated that when Jesus said we are like the angels in heaven, that that means that somehow in our resurrection, we lose our gender. Uh, no, because God in the beginning created them male and female. Our gender was not an oops. It's how God made us. So I don't think that's it either, because, you know, Jesus was still a man in his resurrection. Instead, I think Jesus is indicating that in the resurrection, we will no longer be driven by the fact that we are not whole. See, here in this fallen world, as a man, I have a need for relationship because I'm separated from God by my sin nature. That's why God gives us the Holy Spirit to dwell within us when we become His children. That's why we have that relationship. But the very first thing that God said was not good was for man to be alone. We were made to be in relationship because we have a physical need for relationship, for companionship. We have an emotional need for relationship. We have a mental need for intimacy and relationship. We need those things. Even at that size.
But in the resurrection, we're going to be standing face to face with the almighty creator of the universe. I'm going to be able to, I'm going to be able to be Thomas. I'm going to be able to go. Now, one thing, you ask my kids, one thing that I have loved doing ever since they were like born, right? And old enough to give me a reaction is I'll sneak up behind them and I'll poke them in the ribs. Right? But when I do that in heaven, I'm going to sneak up and poke Jesus in the ribs where the hole is. I'm going to be there to talk to him, to say, why? Why did you choose me? I'm not going to have a need. I'm going to recognize Steph. We've been together for 30 years. I better recognize her. But we're not going to be in the same relationship in the resurrection that we're in now. Because the relationship in the resurrection that counts is the relationship that we have with Christ. I'm going to be standing face to face with Him. And after 10 or 20,000 years, if I still have unanswered questions, I'll be able to sit down with Him and say, okay, please tell me why the platypus. You did it just to mess with us, didn't you? That's what Jesus means when he says that we will be like angels. We will be in God's presence. The need for marriage is gone. The bride will be with the bridegroom. However, even that wasn't the most important part of this passage. Because in verse 31 and 32... Jesus says, as for the resurrection of the dead. Now, he's, he's fixing to really pound on their understanding of Scripture. As for the resurrection of the dead, the eyeballs on the Sadducees, these are the priests, they have read the law. They have read the Pentateuch. And Jesus says, have you not read what was said to you by God? Have you not read His Word? What do you mean, have we not read His Word? Of course we've read His Word. I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. What's the point of that? Because God is the God of Abraham. He doesn't say, I was the God of Abraham. He doesn't say, I was the God of Isaac and I was the God of of Jacob. He says, I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. I am. What does a person in Sheol need with a God? In Sheol, in the grave, according to the Sadducees, you have a pile of bones that they kept in a box. And then you have a dark place where there's a bunch of spirits who have nothing to do with God. Why would God say that He is the God of Abraham if Abraham is just a spirit in a dark place that has no relationship to God? He wouldn't. 
It doesn't make any sense. By the way, this is Exodus 3.6. What happens at the front end of the book of Exodus? Moses is in the backside of the Midianite desert, tending his father-in-law's sheep. All of a sudden, he sees a bush that's on fire, but it's not on fire. Because a bush that's on fire burns up. This bush is on fire, it doesn't burn up. So, of course, like any true man, I need to go look at that. Right? Because <laughs> we do that. And he goes to the bush, and out of the bush he hears, Moses, take your shoes off, you're standing on holy ground. What made the ground holy? Was it the bush that was on fire? It was God. And then God tells him, you're going to go be the deliverer for my people. And Moses says, but when I get there, what am I going to tell them? Because they're not going to believe me. Who sent me? And God says, I am that I am. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. He's our God now and in the resurrection. That's what we have to look forward to. I've had this discussion a couple of times in the not-too-distant past here about the nature of heaven. Heaven is not a place. It's not defined by geographical or heavenly boundaries. Heaven is when we stand in God's presence with nothing to keep us from looking on His face. No sin. You and I can't even wrap our heads around what it means to have no sin. I would, I would if I were a betting man, which would be bad, but I would wager that not one of us even made it as far as the first hour out of bed without sin. Not one. Not at all. Here I am, standing on the platform, preaching to y'all. And you want to know what my first thought was this morning when I realized I woke up an hour early and how tired I was? Boy, I'd really like to skip church today. Guess what? Scripture commands us to not skip. God has called me to do this. See, standing before God means I don't have sin. Standing before God means there's no more pain in my life. Y'all have pain in your life? Anybody have pain? Nobody? Not at all? I have pain. One there, and there's one there, and there's one back there, and I don't know where the other one is, so she's over there. Okay. There's pain. My knees hurt walking down those steps. My back hurt when I got out of bed this morning. 
I have to take medication with dinner so that I don't have heartburn while I'm asleep at night. How about grief? Does anybody have grief in their life? See, when we stand before God in the resurrection, we don't. That's gone. That's why the resurrection is so important. That's why this passage is so important, because we see people who knew God's Word. At least they thought they did. We see the Sadducees, who were the priests, who were responsible for the sacrifices, who were responsible for the religious observance in Israel, who got the resurrection wrong. Why is the resurrection important? Because it proves God's promise. We can never, ever, ever neglect the resurrection. When you talk to people about the gospel, because I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that if you have listened to me preach for more than, I don't know, say 30 days, you know that that's our task. You know that we are called to make disciples, which means we have to make converts, which means we have to share the gospel with people. Right? So when you share the gospel with people, remember the gospel is actually simple enough that a child can understand it. Complicated enough that we will never fully understand its meaning. Number one, we need it. Paul puts it very succinctly, all have sinned, right? All means who? Everybody. All. All. It's universal. Universal inclusive. Everybody has sinned. Everybody needs the gospel. Right? Nothing we can do will ever make up for even one of our sins. You cannot be good enough. You cannot clean up to come to God. You can't. You can try, but it ain't going to work because the water that you use is dirty. Okay? So, God sent His Son, Jesus, who didn't just die, but He lived first. Why is it important that He lived? Because He kept the law of righteousness that we can't. He was perfectly righteous. So when he died, and it's not just the Bible that tells us he died, there are plenty of non-Scripture sources that will tell you that around the first century, sorry, around the 30 A.D. or so, there was a man named Jesus who was crucified outside of Jerusalem. It is well attested that he died. When he died, he did not deserve it. He did it for us. We need the gospel. God provided Jesus and his righteousness to die in our place. And on the third day, what did Jesus do? He rose from the dead. Why? Because the grave couldn't hold him. He had not earned it. Paul says the wages of sin is what? Death. Jesus didn't sin. He didn't earn the paycheck. He couldn't keep it. He had to give it back. And so he rose from the grave. That was God's seal of approval on the work that Jesus did. That's the gospel. It is freely offered to everybody who hears it. Not everybody's going to believe it. That's not my worry. What we're told to do is tell them, don't leave out the resurrection. 